This is Mitchell Belgian and Shelley Mendelacino reporting for The Deciding Mind, and we're here at the Society for Neuroscience 2011 with Dr. Mark Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg, can you tell us about yourself? Sure, I'd love to. I am a neurologist, and I work at UT Southwestern in Dallas. As a clinical doctor, I take care of patients who have stroke, people who come to the hospital because a blood vessel has blocked part of their brain, and they uh, appear with what we know to have a stroke. They're weak on one side or they can't speak. In the laboratory, I work hard to understand how the brain is damaged during the stroke. And my newest question, I think really the most interesting thing, is what we can do to promote recovery after the stroke. This um, question has led me to ask, in general, for for people who have neurologic disorders, from babies to adults uh, to even older people, what can we do to improve the function of the nervous system when the brain's been damaged in some way? And that's the field of brain repair. That's what you were moderating today, right? It was a whole panel. Yeah. You chose four very interesting presenters, some things I'd never heard about either how the brain naturally repairs itself, mm-hmm. and I wondered uh, where would you like to start with that story? Sure. Well, let's think about what it means for the brain to be damaged. And we had, as you said, four presenters today coming from very different areas, and I think that's part of the thrill of this field. When the brain is damaged, usually it means that some part of the brain, not the whole brain, has suffered some injury which maybe can't be, does not recover on its own. And that may mean that the cells have died. And of course, the cells that we think about in the brain are called neurons. Brain cells are neurons. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how does this neuron die in Alzheimer's? Why just the neurons that affect memory? Or in Parkinson's disease, why just the neurons that affect uh, movement? Or in ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, why just the ones which control our muscles? So in every disease where we are really concerned, some neurons either die or they lose their function. And of course, there's other cells in the brain too. So when we think about where all the neurons live in the brain, and they're all stacked up there in the part of the brain called the gray matter. And if you take a human brain or a rat brain and you cut it down the middle, you'll find that in the middle part, there is a sort of white glistening area called white matter. How and, big is that? <clears throat> well, in the human brain, it's almost half of the brain is white matter, and the other half is the gray matter. And the gray matter is the ribbon on the outside that makes up the cerebral cortex. And the white matter is made up of all the wiring that connects all the billions and billions of neurons. And so that wiring makes up 100,000 miles of axons, which are the wires between the neurons, and their coating, which is called myelin, which makes it white. And that's what the white matter is called, because these axons have electrical insulation called myelin. And they go into the spinal cord? Is that right? Some of the neurons project from the brain down to the spinal cord, and they tell our bodies what to do. Okay. Some of the neurons go from the spinal cord up to our brain, and they tell us what's happening in the world, what we can feel and touch. And a lot of the axons of the wires, the vast majority, do nothing but connect one part of the brain to the other so that this vast computer can do its work. So when we talk about brain injury, scientists for years have focused on how the gray matter is injured. The neurons, the cells which are dyed, for example, in these diseases. And today, we're starting to think more and more about the connections between these neurons and how important they are and how we need to keep them alive as well. So many of these diseases are diseases of the myelin. Is that true? That's right. So some diseases we've always thought about as diseases of myelin. The best example of that is multiple sclerosis, which is an immune attack, an autoimmune attack on our own myelin. 
So our bodies, the immune cells and lymphocytes, go into the brain and they attack the myelin. And the consequence is that in our brains, the connections between neurons are slower because they've lost the, the myelin, which is responsible for insulation. So in that case, m multiple sclerosis is what we call a demyelinating disease, and everybody recognizes it as that. So that comes and it goes? Yes, and what happens is there's an immune attack on myelin, and then in the early stages of disease, there are cells which move into the area and repair it. They make new myelin. And we heard about them today. They're called oligodendrocytes. And these cells which make myelin can often multiply and go to where they're needed and make a new myelin sheath. And when that happens, that's what patients with multiple sclerosis experience. They have a relapse. They have a, an attack of something with blindness or, or, or weakness. And then after a few weeks, they get their strength back. And what's happened in that case is the myelin has been repaired. As the disease progresses, it becomes harder and harder to repair the myelin. And one of the serious problems that happens in many patients with multiple sclerosis is that the myelin is no longer repaired. And at that point, people have a progressive form of multiple sclerosis, which is very debilitating. And we think that either the myelin has failed, it doesn't work anymore, or the axons, the wiring itself, has been lost. Either way, it's a very feared consequence of multiple sclerosis, and we still need to understand it. So the common understanding until now is that the brain is really not able to repair itself, but we're seeing that there are many studies now showing that that is actually a false and that the brain is able to repair itself and it can be helped in repairing itself. That's exactly right. Take a different disease this time, a stroke, and you've blocked an artery to your brain. And because of that blockage of the artery, the tissue does not get enough oxygen and glucose and the cells will die. That piece of brain affected by the stroke will never grow back. In an adult, it doesn't grow back. We have some neurons that divide in our brains, but not in the cerebral cortex. And yet, people often recover after their stroke. And so we have the great puzzle that we have to ask. If that brain does not grow back, how is it possible for people to function better? There are people who have had stroke who were paralyzed on one side today. A year from now, it will be hard to know they had that problem. So that process of brain repair doesn't necessarily mean filling in the hole where the tissue is damaged. What it means, to my mind, is fixing the problem. And the way that it's going to be fixed is by making new connections and having the brain take on new functions so that eventually it can get better. If we understood how that occurred, we could make some great strides in making people better. So I was quite fascinated by the presenter who talked about, in animals, I realize, mm. that somehow stimulating the whiskers of the animal that was amazing that was <laughs> can you how would you can you just describe what his sure. finding we know it's not he in humans he was smiling the whole time and either he, we weren't supposed to take him seriously or he just is astounded by himself he knows you're going to think it's funny so this is dr ron prostick from university of california in irvine mice and rats live by their whiskers that's a very very important sensory organ for these animals and when you stimulate the whiskers, they sense it in a part of the brain which is responsible for their whiskers. They have a big part of their brain that's ah. just responsible for thinking about what goes on in the world. That's how they explore their world. They can get by very well in the dark because they use their whiskers to find food and to look around. When you touch the whiskers, the area of the brain that is responsible for thinking about whiskers lights up. It becomes activated. And so his idea was, let's see if we can activate brain areas before a stroke and after a stroke in mice and rats and see if that has an effect. And in fact, he stimulated the whiskers of these rodents. He gave them a stroke. He stimulated some more. 
and the stroke did not damage the brain. So, did it prevent the stroke? It prevented the stroke. It prevented the stroke, and did they do studies to see if there was tissue damage in the brain? There was less tissue damage. There was less tissue damage. Less tissue damage. So this is actually not brain repair, but brain protection. And the logic of it is that this intense stimulation caused more blood to flow to the affected area of the brain, and that perhaps that is very helpful when a part of the brain is not getting enough blood because there's a clot. Maybe some other vessels around that area could be open wider and fill in. That's the hypothesis. hasn't been proven yet. So then he said, well, we have a problem here because people, uh, even if they have whiskers as I do, don't, <laughs> don't rely so much on the sensory input from whiskers. This is not something that's important to people. We don't actually have a big piece of our brain dedicated just to thinking about what our whiskers are. We don't have antennas. Basically. We don't have that, exactly. Uh-huh. And so we don't need to have a dedicated big piece of our brain to understanding whiskers. It's not a a thing we do. So he said, let's pick some other kind of stimulation that everybody can use. And he used noise, sensory stimulation from sound. And again, he got the same result. Intensive sensory stimulation from sound. We have auditory cortex. Mice and rats have auditory cortex. And his thinking was that the extra blood flow activated by that stimulation was helpful in these animals. Now, whether this will have any relevance to people is a great question. It's the only the only way to find out is to test it. In my field of stroke, I've been disappointed that a great many treatments which work very well in mice and rats have not worked in people. And so the only way to know is to test this. But the advantage is, if this kind of stimulation truly is helpful to people, it's really not so hard to do. It probably wouldn't be harmful. And so it might be possible to find this out in relatively short order. How, how do you set up a, an experiment like that that isn't anecdotal? I mean, I immediately thought about sirens in New York, and so nobody in New York City should get a, a stroke because they just put them outside and they hear the sirens and they're back to normal. Right. <laughs> that's right. That, um, that might be what's helpful right. about the ambulance yeah, is actually the, the sirens. Siren. It's the uncertainty principle, right, just by measuring it. We could, we could find this out. Well, probably what you'd do if you wanted to test this in people is you'd, you'd test the hypothesis that vigorous stimulation causes more blood flow. We can measure that in people pretty easily without having to do anything very invasive. So we have MRI techniques and PET imaging, which would show blood flow. And if Dr. Frostig is very sure that the mechanism here is activation of a brain area causes blood flow, we could test that in people in, in quite short order. And we wouldn't even have to use stroke patients. We could use regular people and say, let's give that a try. It's a fact. By the way, if you activate a brain area, you could see blood flow increase, and that's the nature of our PET imaging and fMRI. So it would be possible at least to put the first part of his hypothesis to a direct test. So if anyone you know is having a stroke, yell at them, rub them? Uh, as a stroke doctor, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a put challenge. Put on the Beatles. No, 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 no. What you need to do is get that person to call 911. I'm going to just make oh, this yeah. point because right. when we have patients with stroke, what they don't do is come to the hospital. They're just like the rest of us. They say, wow, my arm is paralyzed and my leg is paralyzed and I can't talk. I think I'll take a nap and see if it isn't better tomorrow. And what you really want to do is yell at them, call 911 <laughs> and come to the hospital. We actually do have treatments which are proven to work, but no one makes it to the hospital soon enough. So I would say if you're going to yell at them, that's the one thing to yell. Get call to the 911. Hospital. Get to the hospital, right? Okay. I would stop at that.
All right, so stop joking around here, but call 911 first, then yell at them, and then put on the Beatles or Beethoven or whatever. I don't endorse this. Okay. So this is an unofficial, uh, but it was presented officially. You it can, was presented. You can look at the website. Well, in Mice and Rats. Okay, Mice and Rats. If you've got a mouse that has a stroke, this is definitely the right thing to do. And what is the role of sort of cranial electric stimulation? Okay. Which is sort of like the 10 unit many in our audience would right. have heard about it. Sure. So when we talk about brain repair, some of the things we talk about are how the brain repairs itself. And if we understand that, how things get better, then we could use those approaches. And we heard about some of those things, how exercise improves the brain, which it certainly does, how certain molecules and cells repair the brain. There's a whole other field which says, let's leave aside what's happening normally and just see what we can do to make some improvement. And one of the most surprising areas, certainly, is the idea that electrical stimulation can be helpful in brain diseases. It seems hard to imagine. If you had a computer that wasn't working, you would not reach a wire in there and turn it on and see that <laughs> things would work better, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you could take a patient who has, for example, Parkinson's disease and put an electrode deep into the thalamus and turn it on and make the Parkinson's better is very surprising. And what it says is that these networks, these complicated structures in the brain, can be boosted by mild electrical stimulation, and we now have many diseases where that's true. So the new idea is that that could also be helpful in stroke, and we now know from experiments in people that applying electrical current over the outside of the head and stimulating that, or putting electrodes sometimes in the brain and stimulating that, can result in some improvement in stroke patients long after the stroke has occurred. So what? So if you're not going to have electrode in the brain, so yeah. a magnetic stimulation, but also right. a direct current? Is, yes, exactly. I understand there's two there's, kinds. There's two something kinds of even therapy. people could have at home. Or right. Is that, That's I'm curious exactly. about that. And so am I. This work has been pioneered by a number of labs. Uh, one is called transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it applies uh, putting a magnet on the outside of the head, turning it on very briefly, and it sends an electrical pulse in the brain, and it might cause the arm to move briefly, or you might feel something. That's strong, right? That's, That's strong. It's mm -hmm. a strong feel, and it not too strong. It's not harmful, and it causes your brain to be activated in a little piece at a distance, so you don't have to open the skull. You just activate this area of the brain. And the remarkable discovery is that that can be helpful in some diseases. It seems to be helpful in depression, and it may be helpful in stroke recovery. The other kind of therapy that you mentioned is hard to see what it does. It involves putting a direct current, like a battery, right, just over the outside of the head again and turning that on. It creates a small voltage. It has a small, very small and mild electrical effect on the cortex under the skull. And that seems to be helpful in stroke recovery, and we don't yet know why that is true. But and it's other, other diseases? Or? And other diseases, I, I haven't seen so much. Uh -huh. And, of course, we want to focus on the diseases that are deep, will not be accessible by this uh, deep in the brain. But the ones which are superficial with the cerebral cortex, they might, be, uh, they might work. So we don't know yet, and we are hearing now a number of posters and, and side presentations where people are really studying this. How does electrical stimulation cause recovery to improve? It would be great to understand that. And as you said, it's very much like the TENS unit that people use to alleviate pain. Right. A little bit of electrical stimulation can help you to rewire in a positive way. Mm -hmm. It's an exciting advance in neurological sciences because while we don't understand how it works, the application is very straightforward. Uh -huh. It looks to be something which is possibly very safe, 
maybe not so expensive and something that would be readily available. And if we could find new technologies that will help people get better, that would be a wonderful thing. It seems the problem is how to measure the efficacy of different devices and what's a quack device and what's a legitimate device. That is the question. Hmm. And I have to say, people, patients, and their families work very, very hard to find treatments for diseases. And they don't take no for an answer. And they use this new tool we have, the Internet, and they find treatments that sound good on the radio. <laughs> Here we are. And they look it up on the web. You're, and they say, you're going to ruin my side business. <laughs> that's right. And they say, boy, I'd love to have that stem cell treatment, or I'd love to have that hyperbaric oxygen, or I want electrical stimulation on my brain too. And the reality is the vast majority of these things are not ones which have been proven. They are... They may work in mice, but they haven't been tested in people. And I think it's it's harmful for people to get false hope that they're receiving a proven treatment when really they're getting something which is either experimental or just doesn't work at all. Is there a list of devices somewhere that have some... Um, it's one no- of the problems, I think, Mitch, with devices is that yeah. they were theoretically FDA-approved, but that doesn't necessarily... Right. Yeah, so we're going to a list efficacy. of proven ones which, which, which we know work and are proven to work. So it is a problem. The FDA does not require to prove that something, a device, works to improve you. They only need to show that it doesn't electrocute you, for example, or doesn't cause harm. <laughs> oh, dear. So, so the FDA is charged with making sure these devices are safe. When you take a drug, it has to be safe and it has to be effective. But these devices don't have to be that way. And so it's very difficult to know. And, you know, really the only advice at this point is to check with physicians and scientists who you trust and ask them, is this experimental? Is this something that really can help me? I think the future is very bright for electrical stimulation as a way of improving human health, but still very early. We're not quite there. In a few diseases we are. Mm-hmm. So people with certain kinds of Parkinson's disease definitely benefit from deep brain stimulation. People with certain kinds of epilepsy definitely benefit from stimulation of the brain during seizures if the drugs don't help right. them. And I think treatment-resistant depression, some kinds of pain. And some kinds of obsessive-compulsive Thank disorder, you. Right? And that's obsessive-compulsive disorder uh-huh. and Tourette's uh-huh. are pretty well, Thank you. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Why I missed that one. Are ones in which there's pretty good data. Mm-hmm. And then there's other things like low back pain and attention deficit disorder right. and Alzheimer's disease where these things are either experimental or just outright fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Some of each. So there's no advice <laughs> for anybody for electrical stimulation, cranial electrical stimulation, any any device that is known to alleviate these problems? It's not there yet. Okay. Uh, I think it's very promising. Let's check back next year. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so just one more note. We, it was uh, three, four very interesting presentations. The mechanism of the arteries, self-healing, yeah. quite a interesting presentation. and Were you surprised by that? I was when I heard about it. So Dr. Jaime Grutzendler at Yale University is a neurologist who is very interested in advanced microscopy and has developed a technique to see blood vessels in a living rat or mouse while the animal's alive and while it's behaving and can look with a very high power microscope right through the skull and see the arteries of the brain. And I believe that not only was I surprised, but he was surprised to discover sometimes that clots would form in arteries as they do in stroke, and that instead of dissolving 
as we all were taught that should happen for a clot that over days sometimes the clot would dissolve because there's blood there's enzymes in the blood that would dissolve the clot instead he found the artery engulfed the clot and spit it out of it, the artery it formed some sort of membrane formed form some, some sort of membrane and then put a pocket around it and then excluded this clot and what was left was an open artery these are tiny tiny little arterioles well, that was a surprise, I bet, to him, because we're pretty sure that this never happens. He has a new name <laughs> for it, right? Oh, he did. Uh-huh. Uh, boy, I don't remember what it was Angiography called. Angiography or? Angiophagy. No. Angio- so phagy is to eat something. So when, when you have cells that eat particles, for example, that's uh-huh. all, like macrophages are oh, the right. cells which uh-huh. come to the brain and, and take care of bacteria. They, they eat them. And so autophagy is when a cell eats uh-huh. part of itself or gets rid of waste in that way. And so he called this angiophagy. So he's allowed to call it that because he's the first person to see it. And we don't know yet what the significance of that would be. I'm sure it would happen in people. And I think the story is this. A lot of people have little bits of debris floating through the arterial system all the time. And we know that, uh, particularly in patients who've had stroke, because we can record them. They're very tiny particles, but we can record them as they zip past an artery using an ultrasound machine. And if you put an ultrasound machine over an artery in the head, every so often you'll hear a little <laughs> And it means that a little clot, a little thing, has just zipped through. And usually it passes through the heart and the lungs and the brain even without getting lodged there. But it's pretty clear that people who have a lot of these little, uh, little particles start to develop very small, teeny, tiny strokes in the brain. And if you accumulate a large number of those, it's, it's probably real damage even though individually every one of them is tiny. So my guess is that he will discover that the ability of the artery to take care of those clots, for example, in younger people, may be a very important self-protective thing. And that older people who may have had some stroke damage or maybe some Alzheimer's probably aren't good at getting rid of those clots, and they are going to be the ones who accumulate this kind of thing. One of our big questions is why Alzheimer's patients seem to be more predisposed to stroke, and more than that, People who have risk factors for stroke, like diabetes and hypertension, get Alzheimer's at an earlier age. We don't think these diseases are related. And so my theory about Dr. Grutzinger's work is that he may have uh, discovered one of the missing links between Alzheimer's and um, stroke. I have to ask him if he thinks so, too. I think he was so <laughs> hinting at that. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. How is that? So in Alzheimer's, you get a deposition of something bad called amyloid plaque in the brain. And we've known about that for 100 years since amyloid, since Alzheimer's described it. It turns out that amyloid plaque also accumulates in blood vessels in the brain. And some people have a great deal of amyloid in their blood vessels. So my theory is that perhaps Dr. Grutzenler's mechanism about uh, how to clear clots might not work when the arteries are full of this amyloid material, and that that might cause them to accumulate more damage. They'd be very unable to defend themselves when they have this amyloid. So, so hopefully the end result of the research is to find the mechanism that we somehow trigger in ourselves that, emit, that emits the uh, clot from our blood vessels. Yes. I think that's the whole thing in, in so much of brain repair is to discover what happens well and do more of it. Hmm. Uh, babies can have a stroke and make a good recovery. They can develop normal language and use their arms and legs. You never know they had a stroke. But if that happens to me, I can't make that kind of recovery. I'm too old to recover that way. So if we understand how it happens when it works, 
then we can harness that knowledge, I think. I have one more question, which is uh, just to acknowledge that some of these therapies are using germ cells. Stem cells? Stem cells. Stem cells. Excuse me, stem cells. And that people don't know how stem cells are being used, but there seem to be a lot of use in terms of tissue repair, brain repair. It's mm-hmm. a promising field. Mm-hmm. Yes? I'm sorry, what was the question? That it's, a prom- <laughs> it's a promising field using stem cell therapies to yes. repair brain injuries and... Yes, exactly. And, and again, the excitement has to do with both parts, the stem cells that we already have in our brains and the stem cells that we can add. So within our brain, there are neural stem cells and there's glial stem cells, the supporting cells that can make more cells. And if we understand how they're regulated, how they're adapted, and we heard from Dr. Gallo that after an injury that causes the cells that make the myelin, the oligodendrocytes, sometimes those stem cells can proliferate and make new ones, and sometimes they can't. And understanding why they can sometimes and why they can't is a way of finding new drugs and treatments. Then, as you say, there are some diseases where injecting stem cells from outside the brain into the brain is possibly the answer to a therapeutic problem. And, of course, that's early uh, phases. We don't know yet where that's going to be helpful and where it's not. But it's exciting. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you'll have to stay tuned to find out all these novel methodologies and look at the Society for Neuroscience website, and perhaps we'll have some specific links on our show. Okay, thank you.